word again this morning. We ask that you would speak to us through it, knowing that you have promised to do so. May you encourage us and strengthen us by the declaration of your word and by the movement of your spirit. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So this morning we are going to uh, begin and end uh, a new series in the book of Obadiah. Next week, uh, Andy Nacelli from Bethlehem College and Seminary will be here preaching for you all. I'm excited for you for that because he's an excellent preacher. Uh, Andy is a, a humble man, a kind man, and a man who gets it. If you understand what I mean by gets it, then, then you get it uh, as well. Uh, I will be preaching at our Sending Church, uh, Riverview Baptist, uh, next Sunday morning as they continue their search for a new senior pastor whose name will not be uh, Levi Seaford. So when, when I return on September 10th, uh, we, not only will Sunday school begin, and we'll be having uh, baptisms as well, but we'll begin a now, I think, 12 or 13 week uh, series in the book of Proverbs, which will bring us right to uh, the eve of Christmas. And I'm really excited for uh, that series, and uh, if I'm excited, you should be as well. So for today, we're going to dive into the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, this book is approximately 290 words in the Hebrew, and depending on your translation, it's about 440 words in English. And for this reason, Obadiah as a book is often a very overlooked. I can't recall ever hearing a sermon uh, on the book of Obadiah, and my only recollection of it ever being used to make a significant theological point is in a, a chapter by Wayne Grudem in his book, Politics in the Bible. He makes a point out of Obadiah. That was about as much as I could really recall about the book before diving into it. That and, and one other thing. Who is Obadiah? Why is this book in the Bible? What are the specifics of the book? And why is it important to us today? Well, I hope to give you all of that as we walk throughout the book. I often find that when I study a book of the Bible that I'm unfamiliar with, I find the most treasures in that book. When you approach a passage you know, like let's say John 3.16, you're like, I've heard it a thousand different times, I've, I've heard different spins on it, but when you come to something you're unfamiliar with, you're often going to find something that you need to hear. And I feel like Obadiah really does pack a punch. His name, Obadiah, literally means servant of the Lord. He's a servant of the Lord. And he writes from a fallen Jerusalem. After Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians took the city and destroyed the temple. This book is primarily a vision of judgment against Judah's neighbor, or Israel's neighbor and relative, Edom. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. So if you remember, God made all these promises uh, to Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. God chose Jacob, and he rejected Esau. From the line of Esau comes the Edomites. And uh, the Edomites are a thorn in Israel's side for, for quite some time. And this book tells us uh, that God's wrath is against them for their actions when Jerusalem fell. And it also looks forward to their judgment from God. So Babylon took Jerusalem uh, around 586 B.C., that is before Christ. And then uh, Babylon returns and destroys Edom in 553 B.C. So you've got about 30 years there. Somewhere in that gap is when this book was written. Somewhere between 586 and 533 B.C. As this book describes in past tense the fall of Jerusalem and in future tense 
the judgment coming upon Edom. Now, Obadiah is also a part of the minor prophets, or the twelve prophets. These, this number, twelve, is important for the nation of Israel because there were twelve tribes of Israel. And this twelve signifies completeness. In the English Bible, we tend to look at these twelve prophets as individual standalone prophets. But the Jews treated these twelve prophets as actually one book. They called it the Book of the Twelve. And so this book, the Book of the Twelve, with the twelve minor prophets in it, is not laid out chronologically, but thematically. They tell a story together. And you're supposed to read them in light of one another. For example, the Book of the Twelve starts with the Book of Hosea. And the Book of Hosea is a very long, drawn-out story of the life of Hosea, illustrating Israel, or Hosea being God, really, and his wife, his unfaithful wife, standing in for Israel. So the entire opening of the Book of the Twelve describes how the people of God, the nation of Israel, have acted and played the part of a whore. That they have sold themselves off to other gods or other husbands. The end of the Book of the Twelve ends with Malachi, looking forward to the restoration of the people of Israel through their Messiah. And these are literally the last verses in the Book of the Twelve, the last book, sorry, the last verses in the Old Testament. We read this. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the book of the Twelve opens with, here is why God is judging Israel. The book of the Twelve ends with a looking forward to the coming of the prophet Elijah and the coming of the Messiah. Stage is, is fully set. And Obadiah falls in the middle of all of this. And it is written as, as the author is dealing with the shambles of life in a fallen nation. The temple is destroyed, the nation is captive in a foreign land, living under a wicked government. And like all the prophets in the Old Testament, we get glimpses of wrath, we get fire, but we also get hope. Prophets always bring in this future hope. And we are reminded that as much as we want to chisel off the edges of the Old Testament God, and the New Testament God for that matter, it's the same one, you can't control that. When you let the Bible speak for itself, you're going to get uncomfortable sometimes with how God acts. And you should note that the problem then isn't with God, it's with you. If you think you can judge God, there you go. For many today, God is nothing more than our grandpa up in heaven, our cosmic cheerleader who never judges. He's only there to affirm us. And such a vision of God fits very, very well with the spirit of our day, our spirit of tolerance, inclusivity, and whatnot. And this kind of thinking implies that there's never any evil worthy of judgment. There is no evil that, that God needs to judge, or we should really judge. And none of us should get upset about anything. And if that's true, then you shouldn't get upset about God being inclusive enough. You'll find no such God in the Bible in general, and definitely not in Obadiah. The vast majority of this book is a description of God as the holy judge who hates evil, who hates evildoers, and who works against those who work against his people. Obadiah instructs us how not, or how to live, in a time of evil and destruction. 
It shows us what provokes God to judgment and what he's going to do after the judgment. Hope. So we're going to dive in here by first seeing what brings judgment upon the nations. We'll see this in verses 1 through 9. We're going to focus here on verse 1 to start. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. The her there is Edom. So this book opens up by saying God is coming, and he's going to rally the nations, and they're all going to come, and they are going to destroy the nation of Edom. Edom. Right, this opens with a, a bang, as it were. no good news here for Edom. The Lord will use other wicked and evil nations to judge the Edomites. God had already done this very same thing to Israel and Judah. God brought in Assyria and Babylon to execute his judgment upon his wayward people. And then God will use other nations to judge Assyria and Babylon for what they did to Israel. God opposes evil. Edom is truly in God's crosshairs here. But they also stand as a sign and a warning to all the other nations. God judges the nations, and we should note this very clearly. God does not judge the nations according to the nation's own laws or customs or preferences. God doesn't go to Edom and say, well, Edom does things this way, so I'm going to judge them according to that standard. And Israel does things this way, and I'm going to judge them according to that standard. And Babylon has these customs, and I'm going to judge them that way. Not how God works. God has one standard, and he will judge every nation according to that standard, and he is right to do so. So God lists a specific sin of Edom here that provokes his wrath. Listen to verses 3 and 4. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The pride, or their pride, is what provokes the Lord to judgment. Our pride deceives us into thinking we are safe from God's judgment. And if you take a step back to where we were last week at the end of 1 Peter, Peter reminds us to be humble, to get rid of our pride, because our pride makes us vulnerable to the devil, to that roaring lion. If you want to know where Satan is going to target people, it starts with this. It starts with pride. They found pride in their defenses, their walls. They literally lived in the clefts of the rock. And so their pride there is, is pictured like they are an eagle soaring in the sky, thinking that they are outside of anyone's touch. No one can get them, as it were. But this pride is found in anyone, including us, who thinks we are untouchable thinks you are above the judgment of God, who thinks that their smarts, their wealth, their influence, or status can put them outside of the law of God. And is that not where we are today? We presume upon God's mercy all the time. We presume upon the reality that God is indeed love all the time. We mock God and we invoke his wrath by denying that he would ever judge anyone for anything. In pride, we have clergy who affirm pride as a good thing. We have people who go around saying God is only love and he will never judge. 
And so we have the absurdities, like you saw this a few weeks ago, the absurdities of things like the Sparkle Creed, said the churches, where rainbow flags are flown outside the doors of people who are supposedly following the God of the Bible. You have, on a lesser scale, evangelicals who are embarrassed about the wrath of God and don't want to talk about it. See, every two years, R.C. Sproul's ministry, Ligonier Ministries, puts out a state of theology survey. And they survey Americans and evangelicals to find out, what do we believe? And generally speaking, I recommend you not to read it because it will make you depressed. The results are not flattering. This is what the last one found. 66% of Americans believe that people are good by nature. That includes 55% of professing evangelicals. 55% of evangelicals believe we are good, generally good at nature. 69% of Americans deny that small sins deserve hell. And that includes 53% of evangelicals. 70% of Americans believe that we are born innocent in God's eyes. And that includes 66% of evangelicals. Like I said, don't read this if you don't want to have a bad mood. We try to change God into whatever fits our likes. We think we are high like an eagle, flying above God's judgment, that we are hidden in the clefts of the rocks, that no one can touch us and God would never judge us, that we are a great and mighty nation that God would not touch. We still believe that the United States of America is a force for good in the world. Be careful, I'm not how I phrase this. I genuinely, genuinely believe America has been a force for good in the world until recently. But now we quite literally export pornography across the world. We export the prosperity gospel into Africa. We now hold money in international prestige over nations and try to coerce them to accept the LGBT agenda, or else we won't give you a dime. And we do all of this with pride, thinking that God still won't judge nations. Can he does. As Ardell has pointed out in the past, we are currently under judgment. That is clear. Proverbs 15.25 says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud. The Lord is thoroughly opposed to the proud. Pride is not something to be tolerated, let alone celebrated. To be prideful is to take a can of paint and to spray paint or paint on your back a giant target saying, Dear God, take me next. God opposes the proud. Always. But God also lists more sins for Edom. So why he will judge them? Consider verses 8 and 9. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Eden, the understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Canaan, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. That pride is found in trusting in the modern wisdom of your time, the might of the men of your time, thinking that you can escape the wrath of God through human means. God's indictment of Eden takes an even more interesting turn, an unforeseen turn, and I think a very important one. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. 
those points are going to continue on in the next verse. But God is going to cut off Edom forever. Why is he going to do that? Because what has happened to Jacob, that is Judah, and that, and that happened primarily by the hand of Babylon. So why is God going to punish Edom for what Babylon did to Jerusalem? Why is God going to punish Edom when they didn't do anything to Jerusalem? This is an important question. God doesn't punish people for sins they did not commit. Look at verse 11. On that day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. God is going to judge Edom, because when Babylon attacked and destroyed Jerusalem, their neighbor and their relatives, Edom did nothing. God is going to judge them because they stood aloof when they should have helped. This is described as violence. Edom had an obligation to act. To be indifferent to evil is to sin. I'll say that to you again. To be indifferent to the evil you are faced with is sin. Inaction from those who know the right thing to do is sinful. Or as James 4, 17 puts it, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So you have Edom there watching Babylon destroy Jerusalem, and God is going to judge them because they did nothing. I think we need to, to hear that today. Because as we face opposition, as we face evil, there is a real pressure to do nothing. To look at the opposing forces of the world and to say, I can't do anything about that. So I'm going to be aloof. I'm going to withdraw. The height of the pandemic, I was writing exemption letters for people who wanted vaccine exemption letters who I had never met before. And I was doing this left and right. Why was I doing that to them left and right? Because the pastors wouldn't. The pastors stood aloof. I don't want anything to do with it. I heard from several people about the fear that prevented their pastors from doing the right thing. They didn't want to have a target on their back. I would paint a different target on your back. Or more broadly with our current insanity, I often hear from other Christians, our pastor agrees with you on all of this stuff, but he won't say anything because he doesn't want to rock the boat. My response to that is the boat has already been rocked. <laughs> the enemy's at the gates. Standing aloof does not make you morally innocent. It makes you culpable. You know the right thing to do, but you don't do it. You're sinning. More recently, as I was uh, working at the Capitol this last session, and signed a public letter this summer calling our leaders to repent, a fellow pastor said to me, aren't you afraid? Aren't you going to draw bad attention to yourself? I didn't say this, and maybe I should lose so I should have said this. So I wanted to say to him, aren't you glad the prophets didn't act that way? Aren't you glad the, or the apostles didn't? Aren't you glad Christ didn't do that? Aren't you glad that the early church didn't do that? That your Protestant forefathers didn't do that? I'm worried I might get the wrong kind of attention from my enemies. Cowardice is our enemy. Aloofness is a sin. And aloofness rarely stays with just I'm just going to do nothing. Because people's consciences are pricked. 
when they see those who do stand up. And you either turn to repentance or you double down on your foolishness. So God continues to describe Edom as gloating then over Israel's downfall. And how they then entered the gates to loot the leftovers. And their evil culminates in verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. That's Israel or Judah's fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So Edom goes from doing nothing to mocking Israel for what has happened to her to catching the fugitives and handing them over to the Babylonians. Their figurative violence culminates in actual violence. The famous preacher Paul Washer, about 10, 15 years ago, commented on that when persecution came to North America, that Christians would be thrown in jail, and what would be the worst part about it is that as they were thrown in jail, other Christians would be holding the jail door open for them to be thrown in. People thought Paul Washer was off his rocker at that time. One thing that bothers me to no end is how Christians can side with the world over and against their brothers in Christ. One Christian leader to me from Canada during the pandemic remarked that he was more ashamed of the pastors who were defying lockdowns and getting thrown in prison than he was ashamed of the government who was throwing them in prison. Those are one of those things that tests my uh, sanctification. <laughs> Someone says something like that. Here he is, literally, figuratively, holding that door open, saying, yeah, go ahead and throw those guys in, you know? Who are they? It's not like Christ died for them, too. Just throw them in! He stood aloof when he should have been calling for action. This is a common tactic of our day. Conservative Christians say something people don't like, and out of embarrassment, other Christians attack them. You know, sometimes they get things wrong. They attack them more than they would ever attack the world. Contrary to this, we are called to oppose evil. To hate it like God does. The author S.D. Smith captures this reality I think really well in his book, The Green Ember. If you have kids, I encourage you to have them read these books. In the face of great evil, one of the characters says this, if you aren't angry at the wicked things happening in our world all around, then you don't have a soul. If you aren't angry at the wicked things happening in this world all around, then you don't have a soul. We have soulless Christians standing aloof who care more about what the world thinks than what God thinks. And we should know God is a fool. He sees it. God now turns his attention away from Eden, Edom, and he turns it to the rest of the world. In verses 15 through 17, he speaks of the day of the Lord, which is a reference to the day of judgment. We read this, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So God here speaks of the sowing and reaping principle. He says, hey, yeah, I'm going to judge Edom here, but all you other nations need to pay attention. 
When I judge one nation, it is a warning to all the other nations that you could be next. And this sowing and reaping is a real thing. What you have done, God says, I will bring back upon your own head. And so he speaks of them drinking continually, drinking themselves into a stupor. This drinking imagery is common in the Bible. The drinking here is a reference to the cup of God's wrath, that God is going to make the nations drink his wrath, and they will become like drunkards, not on alcohol, but on the wrath of God, and they will drink themselves into oblivion, that they will no longer exist. And this is a warning to every nation and every individual. God is the judge of the universe. He will judge you according to your deeds, and he has a cup filled with foaming wrath that someone will drink. All the guilty will have their head, or their evil return to them upon their own heads. Every time God judges a person or a nation, it is not just judgment, but it is that act of mercy, because it reminds you and me that justice exists, and that there is still time to turn. Put it this way as you go about your day-to-day -day life. Every time evil is exposed in personal conduct, that secret sin comes to light, every time a criminal is rightfully prosecuted and thrown into jail, Every time any form of justice is meted out in this life, it is the Lord reminding you and me that justice is real, and that it hangs over your head and my head as well. The anger you feel when you are wronged, or when a loved one is wrong, or the anger you feel when a guilty person gets off scot-free, testifies to you that you know justice is a real thing. You ever get angry because somebody did something wrong to you? You're not really a relativist. You know that there's a code out there. There's right and there's wrong. And that you think that when something wrong happens to you, that something should be done to that person. Because God has hardwired that into the universe. And every time that happens, we are seeing that God in his mercy is delaying full judgment so that you might be pricked in your own conscience and might repent. Even in these verses we see Israel's judged. Some escape that wrath. Some will reclaim their possessions. The nations are warned, hey, you can still turn. Jonah, in this book of the Twelve, goes to Nineveh, goes to the Assyrians, and they repent. And God relents. But there's a foaming cup of wrath that will be drunk by someone. And if you know your Bible well, you know that Christ drank from that cup to take the penalty for wrath due to the sins of his people. The night before Christ was crucified, he's praying in a garden, and he says to the Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. What is this cup? It's the same cup that Obadiah is referencing here, one of the prophets. It's the cup of God's wrath. Just take this cup from me, for not my will, but yours be done. So as he hung upon that tree in our place, Christ drank the cup of wrath for his people. This is the one and the only path of escape. Obadiah then tells us how God will use his own people to judge the nations. Note this, Israel's been exiled, they're scattered among the nations. Edom's about to be judged. God says this, the house of Jacob 
shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble, and they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor from the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Esau, the representative nation here, Edom, are stubble. God's people, Jacob and Joseph, they are the flame. They are the fire that will consume them. You know anything about building a fire? Fall's coming quickly here. You're going to go out back in a cool evening. You're going to build a fire. You need kindling. You need stubble. Something that lights on fire rather quickly. If you only have big logs or something that is wet, you can't really start the fire. Esau here is the stubble. It's the beginning of the fire. It's the thing that goes up quickly. Contrast that with what Esau thinks of himself. We're hiding up the rocks. No one can touch us. We're safe. God says, you're stubble. I can light you on fire and you're gone. Just like that. And then God says he will use Jacob and Joseph, that is Israel, God's people, to consume them. I want you to think about this. You can find, wandering around today, Jews. Can you find anybody anywhere? No, they're gone. So God's judgment of Edom is a warning to all the other nations of the earth. God is not blind, he is not far off, and he indeed judges. Like most of the prophets, Obadiah does not leave us in the anguish of judgment and fire. He also gives us hope, a future hope. Look at verses 19 to 21. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those of the Sheplop shall possess the land of Philistine, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Three aspects of hope here that Obadiah gives us at the end. First, we see the promise. The promise that what was lost through sin and judgment will be restored. What was lost through sin and judgment, God will restore to his people. He says, you are exiled now. Jerusalem is not yours anymore, but I am going to give you that land again. You're going to possess the land of the Canaanites again. You're going to repossess your own possessions. Life in a fallen world can be accurately described as a life full of loss. Sin scars everything. It ruins things. It kills things. All of you have something you've lost in this life. From relationships, people who died way too young, families that have been lost, churches, jobs, schools that have been lost, dreams, that have been lost. We've all been through it. Pain can be deep and abiding, but our God is one of restoration. The entire movement of Scripture, the entire movement of world history is this. God created a good world. Man rebelled. And God said, I am going to do something to restore everything that was lost. Not some of the things that were lost. I'm going to fix all of it. We see this in the coming of the kingdom of Christ. 
God is not just whisking us away to some non-physical spirit existence in the clouds that you're just going to escape this world and then, then everything will be fine. But God promises something far better than that. This world that you're inhabiting, I'm going to make it better and I'm going to give you everything that you've lost. Like Jesus says this to his followers. Whoever's lost family, who's ever lost these things, I'm going to give it to you seven times full in the new creation. We read at the end of the book that God is making all things new. What was broken and what was lost will be repaired and restored. That's the promise. Second, we see that God moves this about in history. All of the restoration is not waiting for the end. Most of it, yes, but not all of it. God says, Israel will repossess Canaan. They did. That the exiles from Jerusalem will return. They did in history. God is not detached from history. He's not uninterested in geopolitical events of world history. In fact, he's working them to his own end. Godly, divinely works out his plan of redemption in history. And he uses people and governments and even the enemies of his people to bring about his plan. So God chose Nebuchadnezzar, raised him up to execute judgment upon his people. And then he judged Nebuchadnezzar. And God rose up Cyrus to send God's people back to the promised land. You shouldn't miss that. When healing comes, when reconciliation happens, when these broken relationships in our lives are restored, when we see the forces of good defeat those of evil, we are seeing God's hand move in history and little glimpses of restoration and healing to the final end. This is why Obadiah said, this puzzled me when I first read it, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion. Not the savior who goes to Mount Zion. Saviors will go up to Mount Zion. And God, at different times and in different ways, raises up deliverers, like the judges in the book of Judges. He raises them up to deliver his people. And all of them are but types of prefigures of the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. That brings us to the third, future fulfillment. The final words of the book, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. As God works out in history, through judgment and grace, through the cho choices of nations and individuals, we are moving ever closer to his kingdom. That is our hope. As it is described in Revelation chapter 11, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What do we take from all of this? I want to give you a few quick applications that we can sing and eat. First, if you are experiencing God's judgment, and that comes in varying degrees, you may just have guilt you're carrying around because of some sin you're doing. That guilt you feel of pit in your stomach, the secrecy that you want to keep that sin so that nobody knows, it's part of God judging your sin. If you're experiencing God's judgment for your sin like Israel was, as Obadiah was written, off in a far land, know that it is not too late. God does judge, 
and he judges us to get our attention. If you are experiencing the judgment of God because of the sin in your own life, the one remedy you have is to run to Christ. Don't wait. Don't think things are going to get better on their own. Go to Christ. If, second, you are like the Jews here, or Obadiah, sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem, you look around and you say, all I see is death, darkness, and ruin. Like evil has come in and when the people of God are losing, what should you do? You should know that God rules even after the judgment of his people. That God is moving us to a time when all of the cosmos is restored and made new. If you are like Obadiah, sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem, know that God will judge your enemies and also that this darkness is a small and temporary thing. His kingdom is forever. The darkness is not. If you are one of God's people, watching the nations appear to triumph, know that they are but stubble before you. You are the fire. God's people are the fire. The nations are the stubble. They will burn up, not because you're strong, but because God has turned you into fire and God is strong. They will burn up. You will not. Trust the Lord. He is the ruler and the king of all things. And then pray and work earnestly for his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning that you have spoken to us in your word. That in the book of Obadiah we see judgment. We see a consuming fire. We see that you oppose the enemies of your people. And that you oppose the sins of your people as well. And Lord, that we see hope that you are working all things out for the good of your people. Lord, we ask that we would take comfort in these words, that you reign over everything, and that you are making all things new, and that you are restoring everything that has been lost. May our hearts take joy and strength in that truth. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.